Primary Care Knowledge Boost Podcast 9, Hematology, General Anemia and Iron Deficiency Anemia. Welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott. And I'm Dr. Lisa Adams. And today we're going to be talking to consultant haematologist Dr. Gregory. In this episode, we get his opinion on a general approach to anemia, and we talk about interpreting full blood count results. We then focus on iron deficiency anemia in particular. We have two follow-up episodes um, that are going to be around B12 and folate, and then immunoglobulins. We've got Dr. Gregory today with us. Can you introduce yourself for all the listeners? Hi there, my name's uh, Dr. Chris Gregory. I'm a haematology consultant. I'm working at the WWL Foundation Trust. I've been here for about six years so far. Fantastic. Um, so we're going to kick off with anemia generally today. Um, so I figured a good place to start would be to define what anemia is. Sure. Um, anemia, at least defined by the World Health Organization, is a haemoglobin level that's less than 120 in women and 130 in men. However, it's important to look at local lab values. And for Wigan, we actually have a haemoglobin of 115 for women. So our normal value is actually slightly lower than what some people may consider to be anemic. Uh, yeah. um, and um, the men is still 130. So anything less than that we consider to be anemic doesn't necessarily mean there's a major problem if it's slightly lower than that. But certainly if it is below those levels, then you've got to start to think what may be causing it and how do I investigate it further? Brilliant. Um, So then kind of breaking it down a little bit, how would you normally go about classifying anemia? Sure, yeah. And again, I think most people are probably aware of how we classify things according to the MCV. So microcytic if the MCV is low, normocytic if the MCV is in the normal range, and macrocytic if the MCV is high. And that's a useful kind of way, particularly if you're kind of a student trying to revise for exams or something like that. Obviously, it's important with any kind of classification system that there can be kind of crossover. So sometimes people can have iron deficiency, but a normal MCV or sometimes even a high MCV. So don't get too bogged down by thinking a low MCV, it can only be this or a high one can only be that. Sometimes there is that sort of crossover between the the various ones, particularly if people have more than one problem. So combined deficiencies, for example, may give you normocytic even though there's iron deficiency and B12 deficiency, for example. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, and have you got any other strategies for classifying it or would you mostly go off that? Mostly go off that, yeah. Um, that, that's certainly a useful starting point in terms of what sort of next investigations are most likely going to be useful in getting a diagnosis. Okay. And I think as clinicians, obviously, that's what we're wanting to try and do to get to the bottom of it as quickly as possible with as few tests as possible. Yeah. Um, so we don't just request everything for everyone. So yeah, it's a useful guide. Brilliant. So thinking about um, anemia generally, what would you say are common symptoms that um, patients might experience? Sure. So again, it depends very much so on the the severity of the anemia. Most patients with mild anemias aren't going to have any particular symptoms. Yeah. Most patients, however, will probably complain of being tired. Now, many patients complain of being tired, even if they're not anemic. Yeah. And the haemoglobin checks are one of the first things I'm sure GPs do to see when people say, oh, I'm feeling tired. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would be very cautious about labelling people's tiredness as due to a mild anemia. Okay. The, the main symptoms that people are tending to get is things like reduced exercise ability. So walking up a flight oh. of stairs, they could do it, but now they have to stop part of the way. Yep. Walking up a hill, you know, those sorts of measurable things, how far they can walk before needing to stop. Yeah. If people have underlying cardiac disease, whether they know it or not, then sometimes people can get increasing angina symptoms if the haemoglobin level does drop down yeah. more as well. So obviously that's yeah. one to ask about chest pain as well as um, breathlessness. Yeah. 
there are lots of other sort of slightly, I suppose, more esoteric types of symptoms that people may have heard about, things like tinnitus. Yeah. That is quite a rare side effect of, of anemia. I think it was yeah. described in one particular paper by an ENT surgeon where they corrected the anemia and the tinnitus went. So <laughs> right. I suppose if someone comes along complaining of tinnitus, then yeah, maybe do a full blood count check. But I certainly wouldn't necessarily screen or start asking people if they've got tinnitus just because you found them to have a low hemoglobin. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Okay, brilliant. And then kind of just um, taking a bit of a step back looking at the haemoglobin generally, if we were to get a blood result through in GP that showed um, a brand new anemia, say, or even a a deteriorating anemia, who would need urgent on-the-day review? So urgent on-the-day review... I suppose is is variable slightly so there's no absolute value of of haemoglobin level that that you should be referring someone for urgently yeah generally speaking haemoglobins of 70 or less are the ones where people are starting to get more symptomatic Mm -hmm. having said that I have seen patients who've had haemoglobins in their 40s and have been pretty well now they've got to that sort of level over a long period of time and the knee-jerk reaction is to think oh goodness you know they need a blood transfusion yeah um but unfortunately if you give an elderly lady who's got a haemoglobin of 43 units of blood you could send them into heart failure because um they've actually got a normal amount of blood volume going around and it's just a haemoglobin aspect that's low so so it's partly dependent if the haemoglobin's less than 70 that would certainly prompt me to think you know i need to do something about this sooner rather than later Yeah. yeah Um, but if they are symptomatic, even with a high haemoglobin, that would also perhaps prompt referral to hospital maybe for further investigations and possibly a blood transfusion if, if the, you thought the symptoms were due to anemia. Okay. Obviously, if the anemia is combined with other problems, such as low platelet counts or abnormal white cell counts, again, that may spur you to think, well, this maybe is not just a simple deficiency. It may be some other bone marrow problem or something. And yeah. again, that might prompt a, yeah. a more speedy referral. Okay, brilliant. Um, and then we probably are going to cover this um, a little bit later on, but with talking about the urgent on the day review, I guess it's always important to talk about um, the other types of urgent review, like your two-week wait referrals yep. um, in terms of um, general anemia. And we often think about um, iron deficiency anemia and referring to um, bowel um, surgeons for investigations and things. But is there ever any need to two-week wait somebody to hematology with regards to a low hemoglobin? Sure. So... Obviously, if someone is being suspected of potentially having a blood cancer type of problem, so again, if there's other changes in the, in the blood counts, very high or very low white cell counts, mm-hmm. very abnormal platelet counts, either again, very high or very low, that would hopefully prompt you to do a, a, a rapid referral. Yeah. Hopefully, at least in the Wigan lab system, there should be a system in place that where the biomedical scientists notice uh, an abnormal blood count um, flagged by the machine, they would wave it in front of one of our noses as a haematology consultant and say, well, mm-hmm. we've got something abnormal here. You know, it may be a leukemia or it may be something kind of else which which is significant. Right. So, so fingers crossed, a haematologist would probably know about it before a GP would uh-huh. in terms of that. Now, obviously, sometimes systems don't always work perfectly, but, yeah. but in an ideal situation that if there was something really dramatic, we would probably be phoning you or getting the lab staff to phone you guys, whether that's out of hours or during working time, to say, look, you need to do a referral. Mm-hmm. Um, often people do present with... To straight to, to A&E with, with these sorts of problems because they're usually quite severe and people are often quite poorly. Yeah. Um, the, the other group of conditions where 
people can be anemic where they may not necessarily have other blood changes is conditions like myeloma mm. obviously we may touch yeah. on that later on in this uh, interview but yeah. um that's something again if you've done other blood tests as well such as uh, lfts and looking at globulin levels that may be an indicator to think well you know i need to do either further tests or consider referral if if the globulins are very high and then immunoglobulins obviously being abnormal following on from that Brilliant. Okay, so a case of looking at the other bloods and then deciding where our best referral is exactly. for it. Yeah. Um, and just touching on that, actually, with the um, the combined um, deterioration in other parts of the um, full blood count, w- if someone was quite unwell with that, would we be sending them to hospital as well rather than just doing the urgent referral? Um, again... You, we would hope that we would kind of give you a guide as to, to the speed and whether this could be just a one-week referral or whether they need admission. Sometimes um, people just with abnormal blood counts, they may be very frail and elderly and, you know, maybe you don't want to admit them, but, yeah. you know, you, you just want them to be seen promptly. Obviously, if they are having quite a lot of symptoms, then that's something you may need to, to ask about if they've just had a random blood test. Yeah. Um, you, you as a GP may just need to give them a ring or, you know, a family member a ring to say, you know, how is the, the person... Um, and again, if they are getting symptoms, then it's probably as, as easy just to refer them in yeah. um, so that we can get seen by the medics and then by ourselves when, when they're in hospital. Brilliant. Thank yeah. you. And just thinking about looking at a full blood count when us as GPs are sat doing our bloods, yeah. um, I have to admit, I, I generally look at the haemoglobin, the MCV, uh, and then I look at white cell count and platelets. Are there other values that we're ignoring that we should really be kind of sure, looking at? Sure, sure. Yeah. I'd reassure you to start with that there probably really isn't, and there okay. they are, generally speaking, the <laughs> main ones. Yeah, so, so don't get bogged down. I know the full blood count is something where we give people an awful lot of information that even we as haematologists don't always kind of can care about too much. Okay. One thing that, that is kind of worth looking if the haemoglobin is high, so if they're mm. polycythemic, yeah. then looking at the hematocrit is kind of a useful guide to say, look, is this a, a true or kind of perhaps a... Uh, an apparent um, polycythemia so if the hematocrit is very high as well they, they may have a bone marrow problem such as polycythemia rubrovira right. and that may prompt a referral oh, okay. yeah. um, likewise if patients have very high platelet counts then looking at other things like the the mcv and the hematocrit may also kind of give you a guide as to see well is this again a myelodysplastic or myeloproliferative problem yeah. um, because they can sometimes have iron deficiency but not necessarily be anemic so you can have normal right. hemoglobin levels but with sort of low mcv so right. so that again yeah. is, is sort of one of those things that, that we kind of look at and think oh, yeah. something's not quite right going on here yeah because i know with platelets now it's really important to to look at if they've got high platelets that's yeah. really important. Yeah. Really good indicator for yeah. cancer and, uh, yeah. exactly yeah and certainly in smokers i think the recommendations is to do chest x-ray of these patients and yeah. things like that yeah. um Obviously, if someone does have a raised white cell count, then looking at the differential is, is a useful guide as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think most GPs sort of kind of think it's related to infections and the vast majority of cases that you'll see it probably is. But if it's, for example, the lymphocyte count that is predominantly making mm. the white blood cell count total go up, mm-hmm. then that may be an underlying lymphoproliferative problem, yeah. such as chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. Um, so that again may prompt not necessarily an urgent referral but perhaps a haematology review just so we can kind of see look is it what the condition is yeah okay what about the um the other white cells because i do admit that the the kind of lower down is inophils basophils sure, monophils i'm yeah. not too sure about I, I, again 
most of those things may, may fluctuate very slightly because the, the, the lab values that tend to be very low, like 0.1 or, or 0.2 yeah. for some of these ones. Um, the eosinophils tend to be elevated in people with allergies. So yeah. with severe asthma attacks, severe eczema, other types of, of allergies, you can expect to sometimes see these ones being elevated. Yeah. Um, obviously, it can relate to underlying blood or bone marrow problems as well. So if it's starting to get quite high above one usually that's mm-hmm. a, a good enough reason to i think pick up the phone and either talk to us about it mm-hmm. or just send a referral in okay and um, with regards to the basophils they're probably most commonly associated with chronic myeloid leukemia cml right. so if you start to see a high white cell count which is made up of neutrophils and there's quite a lot of basophils going on again that's probably one to get on the phone to us right. that's the sort of indication where someone in the lab will usually make a blood film up and wave it under our noses as well so yeah so hopefully we're picking these things up as well but sometimes very low levels but subtle ones can slip through the net of our lab so again it's just worth noting that if you see a raised white cell count to look and, and see what it is yeah um the the um last one i think is the monocytes and again they can just go up in any sort of infection they aren't okay. particularly specific to anything yeah um but they can be linked to a persistently raised monocyte count to a condition called cmml which is not the same as cml no. it's a slightly different one um but again that may prompt a hematology referral right. so if you start to notice a persistently elevated monocyte count particularly if it's rising then again that's worth referring what does cmml stand for so cmml stands for chronic myelomonocytic leukemia so it's a slightly different one but yeah hence the reason why we abbreviate it all the time it's a bit of a mouthful (laughs) and what about um low white cell counts and how significant can they be sure so so low white cell counts can obviously um, be quite significant if particularly if people are symptomatic with infections whether Mm -hmm. that's recurrent viral infections or, or bacterial ones um White cell counts, particularly neutrophils, can vary quite a lot mm-hmm. due to ethnicity, and also women tend to have a slightly lower one on average than, than men. Mm. That's not always reflected on our lab values, but certainly I've seen plenty of women who've had a white cell count of just below one, been perfectly well with it, and there's no sort of problems. Okay. Um, likewise, um, Arabic and African populations tend to have a lower white cell count, and they can even be as low as 0.5 and still be considered normal. Mm. Is that for the neutrophil counts? So that's yeah. particularly for the neutrophil yeah, count but obviously yeah. the neutrophils make up the bulk of the white cells yeah. so yeah. you may expect to see a low white cell count total as well yeah. um, the other thing which is quite interesting particularly related to the Wigan side of things is that you can get a low white cell count total white cell count but when you look at the differential all of the differentials are just within the normal range right so you would like to think that if everything is within the normal range the total white cell count would be normal but for our lab for some reason if you add up the low values of all the normal ones it still means the total white cell count is low so um so sometimes gps refer on saying the white cell count's low and i write back and say don't worry about it all the individual aspects are in the normal range so that's okay yeah and and that's okay so i think that's one of these perhaps slight quirks of, of the way the weekend labs values are set up that's really good to know yeah good so i was hoping you could talk us through if you're looking at full blood count and you first see an anemia sure um, i know we've mentioned about mcv but can you just talk us through your process of what you look at sure so i, I suppose the the first thing i tend to do is just look at um, as many previous blood test results fbcs as i can mm-hmm. um you know we're quite lucky in the wigan thing that, that we all kind of link up on the same computer system mm-hmm. so that yeah. what the gps do then i can also see as well 
Um, so I'll often just click kind of going back several years and the trend is a really important thing. Is this something which has changed quickly as it dropped uh, a big drop or has it been a slow, steady decline over a long period of time? And that's probably one of the most useful guides as to sort of, again, how quickly we need to act on this mm. and what the potential causes might be. Yeah. Um, looking back sometimes can also give you good indicators as to a particular perhaps operation that occurred in a patient. They had, may have had a hip operation, their haemoglobin yeah, was normal, yeah. and then it suddenly dropped. But then afterwards it's picked up a little bit, but not necessarily got back to the same level that it once was. Yeah. It can also sometimes flag up if someone's been started on a new medication. So you had a normal blood count, yeah maybe an illness or medication occurred and it, and it dropped it back down again so again that can just give you a little flag if there's a particular change at a particular point yeah many people though unfortunately just don't have any previous values that you know it may be the first one or they've only had one which is like six years ago which was normal so it doesn't often give you a clue um, at that point in time, again, we'd start to look at the other things like the MCV and, and start to think, you know, is this perhaps due to a vitamin or mineral deficiency? Mm -hmm. Is it due to some other medical problem that's going on? Yeah. Um, obviously, depending on what access I had to the patient and, you know, the case notes and things to see, look, are they on the medication which I would expect maybe to be contributing to this or not? Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the things that we've talked about you know mentioned already what sort of other blood test abnormalities is this sort of looking like it's a particular problem just with the red blood cells or are there other issues kind of going on yeah. that may indicate a, a more significant perhaps global widespread systemic problem okay yeah um and just with you mentioning there what medications particularly are you looking for um so Again, there's certain medications which may be more commonly associated with iron deficiency. So we're all familiar with the non-steroidals and aspirin yeah. um, and particularly people who may be on medications for inflammatory problems. So people with rheumatoid arthritis or other chronic bowel disease and things. It may give you an indication if you don't already know they've got a particular problem. You can see the medication and then think, oh, you know, that may be a reason for it. Yeah. Um, again, people who've got diabetes it may not necessarily be the diabetic medication but the underlying health problem the diabetes itself which can contribute to anemia yeah. um obviously the drugs that i prescribe chemotherapy agents can often affect people's blood counts as well and other forms of immunosuppressive treatments um for autoimmune conditions and things so so that's sort of a guide uh, as to some of the things that i may particularly look for oh yeah after you find an anemia, what are your next steps in terms of some of the next investigations? Sure. So um, a lot of the time people will have the, the usual FBC, UNEs, LFTs, maybe a bone profile done at the same time. Yeah. But obviously, if they haven't been done and it was just a full blood count, then they're certainly useful baseline ones. Renal impairment, abnormal UNEs um, is quite a common cause for, for anemia. Yeah. Kidneys produce erythropoietin, which helps keep the red blood cells alive for longer. So chronic or even acute renal impairment can obviously affect hemoglobin levels. Yeah. So, so that's for that. The LFTs, again, liver disease, more commonly associated with a macrocytic anemia, yeah. may give you an indication as to whether the patient drinks lots of alcohol or other things like that. Um, the bilirubin is also useful to look at because, again, that can be a sort of a marker to say whether there may be some underlying hemolysis going on. Yeah. So a rise in bilirubin may be an indication for that, yeah. whether that's autoimmune hemolytic anemia or some other form of, of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the bone profile, again, that's not necessarily specific to anemia, but it may give you an indication if they've got hypercalcemia. Again, that's a, a marker that there may be some other underlying malignancy going on. Yeah. Myeloma for one, but also bony cancers or bone metastases mm -hmm. um, can also cause that. So again, you're looking as a general screen thinking, which next test am I going to do? Yeah. 
obviously, depending on those things, may prompt me to do immunoglobulins. And to be honest, most people who get referred to my clinic, I'm assuming they've had sort of the usual blood tests by the GP. So yeah. I'll usually check immunoglobulins if they haven't had them done already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also serum-free light chains as well as part of a, a myeloma screen. Okay. I find that ESR is quite a useful one. There's been plenty of patients that I've picked up who've had something like polymyalgia rheumatica mm. and sort of come along and saying, you know, I'm feeling really achy and lots of stiff joints and things. And low doses of steroids have completely corrected hemoglobins from 80 up to 110, 120. Oh, right. um, so, so inflammatory problems is, is quite a useful one to screen for and, oh, yeah. um, and isn't too significant. And obviously then there's the, the, the kind of common ones, the um, ferritins, B12 and folate levels, the hematemics, which I suppose is what we, we think of in that to look for kind of more common vitamin and mineral deficiencies. Yeah. Um, depending on those sorts of tests may then prompt further GI studies or celiac screens and things like that accordingly, but they're not necessarily straight up front in terms of my first line tests. It's yeah. more kind of get those baseline ones done and yeah, then take gather it from your there. information. Yeah. 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 Um, and so say everything comes back um, on those basic screens and they're all normal um, and we're just left with a normocytic an- anemia. Um, what do we do with that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I'm sure there's plenty of people out there. Um, again, it, it very much depends on the patient themselves that you've got and the severity of the anemia. So, you know, we, we do get referred patients who've got, you know, a hemoglobin of 110, they're 86 years old, and, you know, it's not affecting them in any sort of way. Yeah. For these patients, we tend to just leave them alone. We say, look, you know, it looks like it's stable, fine, we've monitored it, we've screened for some of these more significant kind of causes or potentially reversible causes mm-hmm. we've not found anything and therefore it's probably just anemia of chronic disease or or something similar to that where you know it may continue to decline with time but if it's still roughly over 100 then i wouldn't get too worried about mm-hmm. if it's less than 100 or that there's you know signs that they may be getting symptomatic from it mm-hmm. um then i may consider trying some other sorts of treatment to try and boost it up yeah. mm-hmm. so in people who may have a little bit of renal impairment and things like erythropoietin eprex mm-hmm. yeah. for example may help boost things up um and again that can be quite a useful treatment um, um so they're the sort of main ones but yeah i wanted to ask on that point when you mentioned about anemia and looking at chronic kidney disease what kind of level for your sort of EGFR are you expecting to sort of see an anemia yeah so again it, it's there's not sort of an absolute sort of trend yeah. I'm, I'm sure the renal physicians would probably be fairly hesitant about prescribing erythropoietin if it, unless they're kind of creatinine clearance EGFR was sort of 30 or less yeah um yeah. from my side of things if people are sort of anemic and they seem to have symptoms from it, then I would probably just treat more of a hemoglobin level, yeah. even if the relative renal impairment is quite mild. Yeah. So, um, so even though people may have EGFRs, 48, you know, that sort of level, yeah. I might still be inclined to give them a trial just to see if that is something which can boost the levels up yeah. and help therefore reduce potentially the need for blood transfusions or other problems later on down the line. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, we're going to talk about B12 and folate deficiency as a separate podcast because it's a chunky subject. Um, But should we just talk about iron deficiency anemia first? Yeah. If we find a microcytic anemia, normally we check a ferritin to see if a patient has iron deficiency. Um, Is that always enough or should we be checking iron studies? Sure. So um, as a general rule, when I tend to check them, if I'm screening for iron deficiency anemia, I'll probably just do both. Okay. If the ferritin is low, then that is iron deficiency. You've definitely confirmed it. Low yeah. ferritins equal iron deficiency. Okay. 
people can still have iron deficiency if they have normal ferritins. And this is where iron saturations and the iron studies as a whole starts to kind of give you a bit of extra information. Yeah. Um, none of the, those blood tests are very sort of sensitive or specific. So, um, so they can be affected by quite a few different things. So particularly ferritin, if people are unwell or have inflammatory problems, yeah. then the ferritin can rise. So sometimes low normal ferritins can still be an iron deficiency. Sometimes even high ferritins and the patient can still have an underlying iron deficiency. Yeah. The renal guidelines say that you can actually give intravenous iron even if the ferritins are kind of around a thousand mark. Ooh, okay. So um, so I wouldn't start getting too worried. They tend to be end stage renal patients who are on dialysis and things. So not yeah. the average GP patient who's going to just rock up and, and say I'm feeling a bit tired. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is important to think, look, you know, uh, just because the ferritin is normal doesn't necessarily exclude iron deficiency yeah so the next thing that i tend to look at is is then the the iron saturations Mm -hmm. um or transfer and saturation and if that's low and the ferritin is borderline low again that's sort of indicating probable iron deficiency okay if the ferritin is very high and then the um, iron saturations are also on the high side of things that probably means it's more likely to be inflammatory and, and probably less likely an iron deficiency yeah um so yeah and there's a whole kind of gray area in the middle and i suppose if in doubt and you've got no particular you know allergies or anything you can always kind of give them a trial of iron yeah. and see and um, and that's something obviously we may touch on in a bit but but yeah sometimes don't, don't rule out iron deficiency just because of you've got a normal ferritin for example brilliant um, and what about the other bits of the iron studies um, that come back any relevance there yeah so so we, we give people um the iron level and that is just a pretty useless test because the the iron itself is just a measure of how much iron is going around someone's blood mm-hmm. uh, and is very variable so you can take the same person's blood in the morning and in the evening time you'll get different values <laughs> if they eat food you get different values and obviously if they're on medications particularly iron tablets that will also artificially elevate them during the time just after they've taken the iron tablets as absorption gets in so so the iron value itself is not a great one for looking at iron deficiency now in proper chronic iron deficiency you would probably expect it to be on the low side Mm -hmm. but even in someone who's got chronic iron deficiency if they take a couple of iron tablets that iron value may be artificially elevated whereas the actual iron saturation level is still likely to be on the low side of things okay Okay, so the iron saturation level is the it's it's the more useful one in this context of looking for iron deficiency we've got somebody who we find the anemia in we've done the screening tests we find the low ferritin or the low iron saturation and what are we thinking next kind of starting to go through the causes what might be causing it and things yeah so um obviously iron deficiency um has a a variety of different causes um the Mm -hmm. probably most familiar one or the most one people are aware of in gp land is is uh, bowel pathology so people are kind of considering doing two-week gi referrals particularly if people have red flag symptoms so change in bowel habit abnormal stool colors um tenesmus those sorts of symptoms may prompt you to think that you know you needed two-week referral here to a gastroenterology clinic yeah there are obviously other causes or kind of i suppose less significant ones so um, obviously women are probably more prone to iron deficiency due to pregnancy and menstruation mm-hmm. as well during periods so yeah. if you've got a woman who's under 40 and is still having periods then again don't necessarily refer them for the colonoscopy it's more likely just due, due to be nutritional mm-hmm. um, and again obviously asking about diet because there are some people again yeah. for whatever reason either they just 
don't eat particular foods containing high stores of iron or, or intentionally avoid it. Yeah. Um, vegans, vegetarians and things, they're probably more prone to an iron deficiency. So, mm-hmm. so just having an idea as to, to whether that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, also then just asking about potential malabsorption symptoms, reflux and other things like that, which, yeah. which may be an indication that they've got may have an upper GI problem as well yeah. Or, yeah. or something like ulcers, which isn't necessarily a cancer flag, but again, maybe something that, that is affecting the absorption. Yeah. yeah. And I guess you have things like your celiac disease absorption exactly. and your IBDs as well. Exactly. There is obviously kind of groups of other conditions which can cause or um, iron deficiencies such as paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Now I'm not expecting Oof. GPs to, <laughs> to kind of diagnose those ones, but it, but if um, sometimes mm-hmm. people do have sort of unusual iron deficiencies, yeah. they've got no red flag symptoms, they may be young, then you know feel free to sort of pick up the phone, contact us and say, look, I've got someone I'm not quite sure what's going on with here. Yeah. Is it worth being referred? And, uh, and th- there may be other blood tests that we then give you advice about checking f- to, to see if there is other sort of causes for it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, it's, it's also very unusual, but there are certain cases of fictitious iron deficiency as well, where mm. people are taking their own blood and almost like a self-harm sort of thing where they're kind of causing a, an iron deficiency. Um, so again, sort of, you know, being aware of that side of things, they may still need iron infusions and they may see, still need to be seen by a haematologist, but sometimes also these people may need other specialists like psychiatrists as well to get involved to yeah. try and help deal with sort of more complex issues. Yeah. That's quite rare, yeah. um, but, but once you've excluded all other things, then sometimes they are the, the only sort of other sort of things that may yeah. be likely. Yeah. And, and again, in those patients who you think mm, they're probably just not eating much in the way of red meat, for example, or they may have an obvious source of blood loss that, that is just clear and visible, or they've had an operation and they're still just recovering from that, yeah. then, yeah, you know, move on to treatment sort of thing. You don't necessarily need to refer to anyone. But in those ones either who perhaps aren't responding to treatment or things don't quite fit as you might expect them to, then feel free to, you know, pick up the phone, contact us and see if we can give some more guidance. Lovely. Yeah. And actually, is I'm right in thinking that advice and guidance has just started for haematology, hasn't it? Um, it has, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we recently switched it on. I mean, many GPs would have just phoned us up and spoken to us on the phone anyway or, or kind of written to us directly just for advice and stated that on the letter. But yeah. we were getting a number of patients who went through the Choose and Book system and their letter, even though it was perhaps requested for guidance, had sat on our system for several weeks before uh, we uh, get the referral. So yeah. sometimes in those situations, it was just advice about a particular blood test abnormality. Yeah. Um, so we, we were writing back. So hopefully the advice and guidance for a variety of things will make it easier for GPs to yeah. get quick answers. Yeah, fantastic. It may still prompt a referral at the end of the day of yeah. that, but at least you know to refer quicker rather than necessarily know you didn't need to refer when the patient's been sat there waiting for a reply for for a few weeks before yeah, before exactly. we get the letter yeah that's really good and um, so if we move on then so if we've ruled out all the sinister causes or we've referred them to whoever they need to be referred to um how do we go about starting to manage the normal iron deficiency anemias that have no concerns yeah so so in straightforward iron deficiency um whether it's dietary or, or some other cause for it um, I tend to start people on some sort of iron-containing compound. Ferrous sulfate is one of the ones I tend to use. Ferrous fumarate, ferrous gluconate. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're pretty much of a muchness. Okay. Um, the, I suppose the, the, the product literature um, often recommends two to three tablets a day. Yes. Um, very few patients tolerate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. There has actually been some studies which was published in the Haematology Journal a couple of years ago which looked at iron absorption and found yeah. that actually the body's ability to absorb consecutive doses of iron actually reduces so if you give people a big dose of oral iron yeah. then 
the next day actually the stomach may sort of put up some barriers and say oh hang on a minute i don't want to try and absorb quite so much yeah so continuous high doses actually isn't necessarily as good at treating iron deficiency yeah so i tend to start people on just one tablet every other day okay um as a sort of a, a baseline yeah i sometimes increase that to two tablets every other day mm-hmm. um if people are struggling with that and there's been no real signs of of improvement that's the sort of time when i'll think about moving on to intravenous iron therapy okay right um obviously some people struggle with with iron supplementation and taking it yeah um so so going slow and steady is probably the order of the day here yeah if you do want to sort of look for a response, checking the full blood yeah. count and probably ferritin about four to six weeks after starting, okay. just yeah. to sort of give you a guide, what, what you will probably notice first is the MCV starting to improve. Right. Okay. So that tends to be the first thing. Once the MCV starts to pick up, then you're more likely to notice the um, the hemoglobin picking up. Yeah. The hemoglobin will probably correct before the MCV is completely normalized, but, but mm-hmm. that's the sort of general trend. And then only after all of that, are you likely to see a rise in the ferritin if it was obviously low beforehand? Yeah. Um, so it tends yeah. to go in, in that sort of rough order. Right. Um, so don't, don't worry too much if the ferritin is still kind of quite low, but their hemoglobin is now completely corrected. Yeah. It just needs more time. So they've still got a, a kind of a base iron deficiency, but they don't have iron deficiency anemia anymore because yeah. they're not anemic. And often it can be many months, sometimes even a few years with iron supplementation to replenish the stores. Um, before they can actually stop the tablets okay yeah brilliant i was just going to ask about stopping actually so what would be the process and when you would think about stopping the iron yeah so so as a general rule of thumb once their um ferritin is kind of corrected and assuming the the anemia is is all corrected earlier than that then we would tend to go for between three to six months longer yeah just to kind of give them that little bit of extra boost and supplementation yeah that i tend to say stop the iron supplements most people are happy enough with that and grateful (laughs) when we tell them to do that and then to recommend getting a repeat full blood count and ferritin about six months later yep. right. just to kind of catch it if there's going to be an early drop. Obviously, sometimes people will stop it and then whatever process may still be lingering in the background, they may still need more iron than their diet is containing. Mm. Yep. And so it may drop back down again. And that six-month mark, you're probably likely to catch it before they get too symptomatic. Gotcha. And again, if they tolerated the iron and those doses before, you can just restart it and hopefully try again stopping it you know after six months or so great and would you i'm guessing we probably would rescreen for new red flags and new symptoms if they've had a drop again after that six months um again it would probably be prudent to do that but if they went through the full colonoscopy and other gi investigations yeah. Yeah. you wouldn't want to put them through that again if they didn't find anything and there's obviously nothing new in the clinical history or yeah yeah uh, clinical examination or histories yeah. so yeah so it's just to be aware that obviously sometimes problems can evolve and, and develop and things but yeah Good often it will be these patients because dietary requirements or because they've got some other blood loss source that you're kind of aware about but can't do a lot about yeah mm-hmm. so just again being sensible and thinking have they had all these tests if they've not rescreened if everything's still okay then yeah, carry exactly, on exactly Lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing i just wrote down before sarah yeah, asked yeah. some more questions <laughs> yeah. is about citron um, and the usefulness of that because um, i've had a few patients come in to me not tolerating iron and they've asked it, would that be a useful thing for them to take instead sure so so citron is basically just liquid iron preparation mm-hmm. so the advantage of it is that because it's a liquid you can give it in theory in much smaller doses than it even sort of recommends so okay. you can just give you know a few drops obviously if you are giving much lower doses then expect it to be a lot longer before you're getting that same sort of iron absorption and, and therefore kind of improvement in the blood counts yeah but but that's certainly a way that you can start to start off at very low doses 
um, uh, even mixing it with food or other kind of drinks and things like that. Yeah. Iron absorption is slightly impaired if you're having it with food, but arguably having it, you know, so you can tolerate it is better than just not having anything at all. Yeah. Um, there's even products out there which are more aimed at sort of countries which are developing, which really don't have big access to sort of red meats and, and people um, who eat diet, which is mainly plant-based. The, mm. There's a product called an iron fish, which is essentially just a little cast iron fish um, which people can put into pots where they're boiling soups or boiling oh. water and things. Right. And, and even those sorts of things just increases the amount of iron in the people's meals. Mm. Again, it's a few micro millimoles, um, mm. but, but just that amount over a long period of time, again, can help sometimes prevent iron deficiency. Yeah. If someone comes with a hemoglobin of 70 and a ferritin of three, you know, an iron fish is not, is not going to do something <laughs> to, to rapidly boost it up. Yeah. But if it's just a very mild thing, then, then even mm. things like that may just be enough to sort of take the edge off it or prevent them from having to take a tablet, as it were, in the future. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. If somebody ha- hasn't tolerated iron or if yeah. it's not lifting despite treatment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. when would we move on to IV iron? So, so that, that will probably be the, the stage. Um, as a general rule, you probably want to try them on at least two different oral iron preparations as low a dose as possible. Mm-hmm. If they're not tolerated either of those two, then yeah. I think it, it's fair enough to think, look, this person's got iron deficiency. It's not going to improve unless they get iron yeah. and yeah. therefore iron infusion. Sometimes people do tolerate it as well, but it just doesn't work. And particularly people with chronic inflammatory problems, so mm, renal yeah. impairment, cardiac failure, those sort of patients, yeah. there's good evidence that IV iron is, is, is far superior to oral iron yeah. in terms of its its ability to improve the blood counts. Yeah. Um, so in those circumstances, yeah, we tend to say that's fine, refer on to us. What we tend to do is try to see people in our clinic before then booking into our day case unit, PIU, yeah. for iron infusions. If sometimes people do have very low blood counts, we may just get the nurses to try and organise an iron infusion even before they come to our clinic. Yeah. We find it is useful for them to come to our clinic at least once so we can get a gauge just to just make sure we're not missing anything like a rarer cause of iron deficiency. Yeah. Most of these patients will have already gone through endoscopies or other kind of causes and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are those few other sort of slightly more unusual hematological problems which we can screen for. Mm-hmm. And also it gives us then a gauge also about um, follow-up and monitoring because if someone is iron deficient requiring an IV iron infusion now, mm-hmm. they may with one iron infusion be okay for, for years, but you know, sometimes people need another one in three months or six months or yeah. 12 months. And so we can look back and have a gauge as to say, well, look, you don't need to come to my clinic every week, but, you know, I'll give you a six month or a nine month follow up appointment. Yeah. Just so I can perhaps try and catch any further iron deficiency before you become symptomatic. Yeah. So we've got a handful of patients who do have chronic iron deficiency. We can't treat the underlying problems, but we can try and manage it so they don't get symptomatic from the iron deficiency through iron infusions. Yeah. Uh, and obviously that's something that, that we can monitor um, rather than you guys having to worry about checking these blood counts and then referring again and yes. going through the referral processes. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and so I guess all along so far we've been talking about the anemia. So this is all in um, kind of the context of a low um, HB. Yeah. Um, but we do sometimes get abnormalities where the HB is normal um, and we're just kind of wondering how significant those are. So say we've got a low MCV yeah. with a normal hemoglobin and our screen has been normal. So iron studies are normal, ferritin's normal. How significant is that? Sure. So in those circumstances, it's probably not all that significant. Mm-hmm. The, the commonest cause for that 
worldwide and probably even in the Wigan area is thalassemia traits. Yeah. So, so thalassemia is, a, well, the hemoglobinopathies as a, as a group is a genetic condition where the, the blood cells are not forming properly. They do a pretty much normal job, so people don't tend to have any symptoms, but they yeah. are very small under a microscope. Yeah. So um, that's obviously much more common in, in Asian, African populations. However, in Wigan itself, we do have... Um, white Caucasian patients who who have a higher than average incidence, so mm. that's certainly something in in this particular area of of the the UK where it's well described that, that there's groups of families who do have um, these alpha thalassemia traits without any obvious hereditary involvement from yeah. you know Spanish Mediterranean or, or further afield. Yeah. So yeah, so that's one to just be aware of. It yeah. doesn't require hematology review. It doesn't require referral. Um, often if we get that then we will write back to say look you know just reassure the patient it's not significant yeah the only time it tends to be significant is for women i suppose men by default during pregnancy yeah so if a woman does have a thalassemia trait and then she's married or she, the baby's father it does also have a thalassemia trait then there is a chance that the baby could have a more significant form of thalassemia right. okay now the reassuring thing is that any woman in the Wigan area will automatically be screened for the risk of thalassemia so they'll do a full oh, blood right. count and and be guided on that and they'll right. often do sort of thalassemia screening test hplc testing Brilliant. um that can then give an idea as to whether they need to do partner testing yeah so so obviously that's one thing that they the the kind of obs and gynae team will, will take forward yeah. so it's not something generally speaking that most people need to worry about particularly yeah. men and women of non-childbearing potential you know they've gone through the menopause or something if you find that and they've you know had three kids already then don't worry about it you yeah. know they're not, they're not they're necessarily planning on having any more so it's yeah. Brilliant. So we don't have to go searching for thalassemia if we see a low MCV in a normal hemoglobin. Correct, yeah. correct. Yeah. You, you, you don't need to do further screening <laughs> tests or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've ruled that iron deficiency, then the chances are it's probably a minor out for thalassemia yeah, trait, which doesn't require anything further. And likewise, it doesn't really require family screening and things. So, you know, yeah. you're not calling in children of, yeah, of patients just thinking, and things like that. Yeah. Again, that will be picked up if they, they, they do go pregnant into pregnancy. and they have families yeah. and things of their Perfect. own. Brilliant, yeah. Um, and then the other one is if we've got a normal hemoglobin, um, normal MCV, but a low ferritin or low iron studies, how significant that would be? Yeah, again, um, it's sort of an iron deficiency, but not an iron deficiency anemia. Yeah. Um, you should really think about all the same red flag symptoms that an iron deficiency anemia can cause. Yeah. You may have yeah. just, this may be an early bowel cancer and you just happen to have caught it yeah. before it sort of developed more significantly. Yeah. So some of these patients may still benefit from GI referral and things if you're worried about it. Yeah. If you're thinking, look, this patient's well, and again, there may be a dietary cause for it, then just starting them on supplements and making sure that you've booked them some sort of follow-up appointment mm-hmm. to, to repeat their ferritin and full blood count to make sure things aren't deteriorating yeah. or that they haven't developed new symptoms, which again may prompt a scope. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, just thinking about that, actually, if um, we've got somebody who's on iron and they do say have an underlying bowel cancer or something like that, would we expect the um, iron to be deteriorating even though they're taking it or could it still stay stable? Um, so it could be a hard one it it could be either i suppose is is the the answer so it it partly depends on on how much blood loss is occurring because of that that tumor yeah Yeah. Um, so it's not a reliable thing to think oh the the iron's staying stable correct correct yeah 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 so um, obviously if if the iron supplements does completely correct everything Mm -hmm. relatively quickly and there are no red flag symptoms then you wouldn't necessarily need to sort of 
refer on regardless mm-hmm. um, but obviously if things aren't correcting despite them saying that they're taking the iron supplements and tolerating and things mm. it might just make you think mm, you know is there a particular reason yeah. that i've not thought about and again maybe even just a routine colonoscopy may be appropriate mm-hmm. rather than necessarily a two-week referral mm. and you can still organize those things if you you know not overtly worried about cancer but just want to rule out any other bowel pathology like inflammatory bowel disease or yeah. something else like that yeah yeah Brilliant. So I think we've asked you everything we can think <laughs> in terms of this topic. And um, so we can say goodbye to you now and then uh, meet up again to do the B12 and folate questions. Sure, no worries. Thank you no very worries. much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So yeah, that was a great um, chat from Dr. Gregory, wasn't it, Sarah? Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think particularly for me, um, it was useful to have that systematic approach to looking at all the different bits of the full blood count and knowing that actually I'm probably looking at the right bits, um, which was reassuring. Um, But just a bit more knowledge about all the other um, things that come back to us on the blood count and maybe the significance of those, if anything, is abnormal. Yeah. Um, I really liked the part about when we're looking at when we're replacing iron um, actually monitoring the success of replacement so I didn't realise it was the MCV that that you see an improvement in first um, and then the haemoglobin and then the ferritin so that's something I'll be trying to look out for next I agree yeah Um, and just time frames and things for that and how often we should repeat after they've been given iron Uh, it's really useful to know how to monitor these people properly yeah lovely so yes we're going to um be trying to stick to a bit more of a release schedule now we're going to try every three weeks on a monday um, and our next one is going to be another hematology episode with dr gregory around b12 and foliate um which we can already promise is pretty good yeah we would love it if people could fill out our survey and we've got a link to the survey that's on the podcast description also we can be contacted on our email or on twitter so our email is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and on Twitter we're at the handle PCKB podcast. Lovely. Until next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Wigan in 2019. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for more information and for any links that we've mentioned in the episode.